Hello everyone, and welcome to the next, current, latest, whatever you want to call it, edition of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. I am Robert Winfrey, I'm your host. Uh, let's see, on the agenda tonight, well, we have a review of <clears throat> yesterday, UFC 250 took place. Uh, about as good on in practice as it was on paper, I think, all things considered, so we'll go over that. There's an upcoming event, and boy is that a dog. Um, woof. This is not a good event. And then some news of the week, because, well, news. Boy, was there news. Uh, some of which dovetails into uh, related to some stuff that was on last week's episode, but new developments, so on and so forth. What are you going to do? Uh, I am flying solo for this podcast, so... Uh, apologies if you just don't, if you're not the biggest fan of me droning to myself. Uh, the state of the world being what it is, you know, people's availability changes a lot. So I'm recording this at a later time than usual. It's just eh, it is what it is. So let's go ahead and jump into the crux of this. Last night, UFC 250. Uh, again, pretty solid event. This took place from the UFC Apex facility in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, again, solid event, I think. Uh, your main event, Amanda Nunes defeated Felicia Spencer via unanimous decision, 50-44, 50-44, 50-45. I think it was Saul D'Amato who said 50-45, once again proving the man is about as useful as an empty can of soup. I mean, really... Not one 10-8 round in that... I gave... I think I was 50-41 at, at the end of this fight. I gave Nunes like two or three 10-8s. Because Felicia Spencer, I mean, incredibly tough woman. She took a beating. And she certainly put forth effort. I'm not trying to diminish that. But she had nothing of substance to offer Amanda Nunes. Uh, she never threatened her with anything, really. Only hit her clean a couple of times. I think there's a bunch of rounds where she was, like, single-digit significant strikes. Uh, I believe the new scoring criteria in terms of language is superior, but if no one's going to actually apply it the way it's supposed to be applied, then why bother? Uh, again, even 50-44, I think, is generous uh, for Spencer. Uh, just So, scoring continuing to be just terrible, which was kind of a theme for the night. There were some really odd scores. So, um, yeah, Nunes makes history. She is the first simultaneous champion to defend both of her title, both the titles while holding both titles. Um, if she got asked after the fight, you know, what's next for you? She doesn't know. I don't know that there's really anything for her in MMA at this point. I mean, in all seriousness, what, who is there for her to fight? Who or what can she do to, to substantively add to her legacy, right? Because at this point, if you're not just talking about the financial realities of I need the paycheck, so let's let's set the money aside for a second. We'll get back to the money a little bit later, but if you're not just doing it for the money, if you have larger considerations to tack on as well, such as your physical health, 
or again, your your place in the history of the sport, what can she do? She's beaten. Uh, she has finished every other bantamweight or featherweight champion the UFC has had. Now, I know she didn't finish Jermaine Duran to me in the rematch, but she did their first fight. I mean, if you look at it, she takes the title from Misha Tate, uh, proceeds to knock out the only other two, because there were only two other bantamweight champions, that, that being Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm, stops both of them in the first round. Knocks out Cyborg in the first round. Again, she's already beaten Jermaine Durand to me. Beats her again. Has two wins over Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, abused, just horribly abused Raquel Pennington. I mean, what what is she trying to achieve at this point? Like, Again, what's the goal if the goal is not just, sure, I want to cash another check? Which I'm not saying, that, to be fair... And very clear, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, what are you doing apart from that? I mean, the woman has only one loss in the UFC. That to Kat Zingano, which uh, Zingano staged a truly spectacular comeback to win that fight. But, uh, I mean, is there any even remote possibility a rematch goes the same way? I, I tend to think not. I mean, I don't think Zingano's even in the UFC anymore. I might be wrong about that, but I don't think she is. I mean, she's... There's really nothing for her to achieve unless she just wanted to break Ronda's title defense record at bantamweight, I guess. Because if we're just talking about bantamweight, she's defended it five times. Um, so I think she would be, I'm trying to remember, I think Rousey had six. Yeah, Rousey had six. So if she just wants to, if she just wants to break Ronda's title defense record in total, then, uh, yeah, it would just be defend that belt two more times and we're done. Um, if you want to count her, like, her total, you know, her total record in title fights in the UFC is the best in women's history. I mean, she's uh, not only you know, she has the two title wins, as well as a defense for the featherweight. So again, if we're just talking about UFC title fights, she's she's eight and zero in UFC title fights. Again, that is the best of any female fighter in the history of the UFC. I'm granted short history, but still. 8-0 in UFC title fights is a darn good number. I mean, the only people who are... Dang, who's undefeated in UFC title fights? Apart from her. That has, like, any sort of substantive record behind them. John. Um, I mean, Anderson wound up losing... Uh, not only his title, but then lost the rematch. GSP lost... GSP only has the one. Two. He has two. He lost to Hughes and Sarah. Sorry, I forget. I tend... I sometimes forget about the first Hughes fight that that was for the title. So he lost twice, but has, you know, a bunch of wins. Uh, Demetrius Johnson has two title fight losses. He lost to Cruz at Bantamweight and then lost his belt to Cejudo, in addition to a boatload of wins. 
Um, Adesanya's, if you want to count the interim title, 3-0. and So, yeah, I mean, just be, be, having that kind of a record in title fights in the UFC is incredibly impressive. There's there's not really a whole lot left for her to accomplish. There's not a... And, I mean, the other thing that kind of gets brought up, and I think it's a fair point, uh, you excited to watch her fight anyone? I mean, I, look, I wouldn't hate a rematch between her and Valentina, but... Like, let me pull up the UFC bantamweight rankings such as they are. It's... Because it, it, bantamweight's not a great division right now. Because uh, I don't think these have been updated just yet. So, currently, you have... If we're talking bantamweight, because featherweight's not a division. So if we're talking, so I mean again, like the most you, if you want to do featherweight again, you would throw Megan Anderson in there. And I mean again, it's not like there's not value in watching a man. There's not you know sale value in watching Amanda Nunes destroy someone. But is anyone clamoring for that fight? Is that really gonna you know? drive a whole lot of interest. So if we look at Bantamweight, number one is Jermaine Durandamy, who she beat twice, convincingly both times. Holly Holm, already knocked her out. Aspen Ladd, Juliana Pena, and Irina Aldana, so numbers three through five, are kind of where you, again, those are people she hasn't fought. And Ladd's technical, but... I don't think she could hold up to the firepower. Now, again, I know some of this is... Uh, I'm not saying that she couldn't win. Um, Juliana Pena's real good on the ground, but, you know, it's not like Nunes is a slouch there, but, and you still have to deal with her on the feet, and Pena's striking is uh, not especially great. Aldana, good about movement, you know, good on the feet, but her grappling, especially if she's on bottom, leaves a lot to be desired. So it's, and again, I'm not saying it, that none of those women are capable at all of beating Nunes, but is there anything there that, you know, is striking your interest? Anything that's like, you know, I really want to see Amanda Nunes fight so-and-so. There's not really anybody. And she's been on top for a number of years at this point. I mean, she beat, she became champion in 2016. So she's coming up on four years. And that's a long time for not just someone to be champion, but for no one to really kind of, you know, make a case for themselves. I mean, again, it's not like there's nobody in the division who you could throw up there if if you're just going to get the next guy up, right? If her thing is just... I want to, you know, I, I want to cash, uh, again, I want the check, right? If her big thing is, I want checks, I need to make money, there are some options. It's not like this is just a, a, another wasteland. But there's not really anything, it wouldn't be anything, I think, more than, you know, uh, punching in and out on a time card, right? And I don't think there's anything she can do to improve her legacy at this point. You know, a lot of times you look at, you know, even someone like John. Like, how could John improve his legacy as one of the greatest of all time? Well, John could improve his legacy by going up to heavyweight and winning 
uh, any fight really would just you know, help in, would just help further cement his status. If he wins the title, I think he'd probably be the undisputed goat at that point, for whatever that's worth. You know, there, there are people you can kind of go, okay, what can they do to add to their legacy? And you can point out some things. Okay, defend the title a few times, get a streak going, maybe score some impressive finishes, fight in multiple weight classes, etc. I don't know what she can do. I think this was her 11th win in a row. Um, she's got the spectacular finishes. She's beaten high-profile opponents. She's beaten low-profile pro- opponents. She's won in two weight classes. She's defended titles in two weight classes. Like, I don't think there's anything else she can do. You know, like there's there's nothing she can do to add to her resume at this point. It's just that good. So I don't know. I don't know what she does next. I mean, her uh, her wife is you know currently pregnant with their first child. So hopefully that all goes well. Um, again, I. The woman is an amazing fighter. Um, again, she pitched a complete shutout here. I, I sound like I'm being dismissive of Spencer, and I'm trying not to, but I, I just don't have a whole lot to say about the you know the substance of the fight, apart from the fifth round being completely unnecessary. Um, there were I, there was some discussion after the third round, like, okay, what are we doing here? You know, Spencer hasn't had a whole lot of success. Is there a whole lot of value to her going out and continuing to get punched? And she comes out in the fourth round, and for a little bit, again, she's still doing stuff, right? She's still putting forth the effort. She's just outgunned. And then as the fourth round kind of unfurls, uh, Amanda starts really putting a beating on her. Uh, if there's five more seconds in that round, I think she gets a finish. She has a really tight rear naked choke locked up as that round ends. After the fourth, I think everyone kind of went, okay. There's no point here. Um, any any remote possibility she had going into the fourth of, okay, you've lost, you've lost badly, but you haven't taken, I, I don't think prior to the fourth she'd taken a real, you know, catastrophic amount of damage. Uh, after the fourth, uh, just, that fight should have been done. There was no point to it. And, I mean, Nunez even looked like she backed off. Like, she just, uh, she didn't really want to, you know, on the real off chance that something crazy happens, put herself into a bad spot, and she didn't want to... Uh, she looked like she pumped the brakes just a touch, and that kind of allowed Spencer to survive. So I don't know if that was purely risk management. I don't know if she felt bad for her. <laughs> like, I've just beat this woman up for 20 minutes. How about I, you know, I'll... You have kind of the old gentleman's agreement, which is just, you know, okay, we'll keep going like this, and if neither of us gets chippy, we'll just kind of coast this last little bit. I uh, th- That's kind of what happened, I think, in the uh, Greg Hardy versus Alexander Volkov fight. Like, Volkov is better than Hardy everywhere. But they kind of fell into this sort of unspoken, kind of tacit understanding of, okay, we're going to fight, but as long as Greg Hardy kept things at a, cur- at a specific kind of interval, Volkov was happy to fight at that you know, speed interval at that activity interval and just, okay, I'm better here. I'll outclass you. I'll win. And if you don't do anything crazy, I won't do anything crazy. And we'll just kind of let this play out like a really, really hard sparring session, you know? So I I think maybe a little bit of that snuck in in the fifth. Um, Again, that round was just not necessary. I didn't need to see that. 
Felicia Spencer didn't need to take the abuse. It didn't... It was just not a thing that should have happened, I think. Um, and... It's just not... You know, I've heard Luke Thomas talk about this a few times, and I think he's right. When you see high-level coaches... I mean, uh, you know, Mark Montoya comes to mind immediately. High-level coach. When even the very best and brightest coaches in MMA are not really willing to throw in the towel, we're not dealing with stupid people just making bad calls. What we're, we're almost trying to fight, again, like, uh, the culture of the sport. MMA just has a very specific ideology set around a few different things. You don't tap out to strikes... You don't throw in the towel, you, you know, blah, 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 right? There's just things that are part of the the, the culture is the best way I can, I can express it. And some of them are understandable. Some of them benefit the sport. I'm not saying they're all bad. We don't have a real understanding of when the corner should step in and stop fights to save fighters from catastrophic not even not even catastrophic damage just unnecessary damage I, I mean you know Raquel Pennington got sent out for the fifth round of her fight with Nunes what did that accomplish I mean I know after the after the fact Pennington said yeah I'm glad my coach talked me back into going out there and sent me out there and I got to go out on my shield and it, what no you took how long did that you took two and a half minutes worth of utterly unnecessary head trauma. I mean, you didn't have a... Again, you don't have a... I don't know. Maybe it's because we still remember a few of these like crazy comebacks that we always want to go, well, you've always got a chance. Your job is not to say there is zero chance. Your job is to assess how great... Again, how great a chance relative to the long-term consequences of physical damage. I'm going to point this out again because I, uh, it's true. If you look at, there was a boxer who was killed, uh, I think it was last year, Maxim Dadashev. If you look at his fight, he was more competitive than Raquel Pennington was against Nunes or Spencer was against Nunes, and his corner still stopped it, just unfortunately not in time to save his life. And MMA's not going to have a come-to-Jesus moment about this until something really bad happens. And something really bad will happen. It is inevitable. You do this over. You have enough iterations of a set circumstance with a fail with a point of failure built into it. Eventually, it fails. So, yeah, I don't know what's next for Nunes. Uh, if she just wants to cash a few more checks, potentially, then there are fights for her at bantamweight. Uh, assuming she can slim down her physique again, because she put on some. F her her featherweight she she didn't just you know stop cutting weight to get up to featherweight she actually added muscle mass so if she can kind of re retool her physique down to 135 uh, again there's some fights there for her i'm sure she'll get paid i favor her heavily in all of those fights uh but yeah i don't know what's next for her i don't know how much longer she's going to be around and it'll be kind of a shame when she does leave because she's so good but, you know, you either retire on top or you go on a losing streak. You know, it's it's a brutal sport that way. 
Uh, your co-main event, woo boy. Cody Garbrandt uh, killed Rafael Asuncao with a punch. 4.59 of the second round. Oh, my, this punch. Um, this was a thing of beauty. Uh, back, Cody's back is to the fence. Kind of dips at the waist once. Baits Asuncao to get a little closer. He dips again. Asuncao bites on that. Tries to throw a right kind of uppercut shovel hook kind of thing, you know, that kind of uh, inside upward, you know, diagonal up to the left to hit Cody's head while it's down. Cody, as soon as he sees that 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 Austin Sal bites and actually starts throwing, throws an intercepting, I say intercepting because it's a simultaneous punch, he doesn't. Uh, there's a rhythm to a lot of fights. Um, things tend to come in threes, you know, there's the attack, counter, and then you counter the counter, and that's kind of the rhythm. So it's, you know, punch, Deflect, punch, deflect. An intercepting counter comes, you know, in between that. It's I faint. You usually comes off of faint. I faint. You counter. I know your counter's coming. So at the same time, I counter your counter, and you're done. It, when they're when done properly, intercepting counters like that are incredibly powerful. And that's what he got Austin Sow here with. He read that, and then just he threw that right hand from like I think Joe Rogan mentioned, like his knees. Like, he dips at the waist, that right hand drops, and he swings a right hook from hell. And Austin Sow, he was out bad, man. He clips, falls, bell goes, you know, the horn sounds right at the end of the round, and he was out. I mean, that man, they tried to get him to sit up, and he couldn't even sit on the stool. Like, nope, sit on the ground. He was, he was donezo. Um, the rest of the fight, Garbrandt had a he didn't throw his hands a whole lot. I wouldn't say not at all, but he did a lot more kicking. He used that kind of as his range finder. In, um, didn't use his jab almost at all, which is... It's so sad, because Garbrandt has a really nice jab. He just doesn't use it. But for a guy who's having to rebuild his confidence, who he spent some time with Mark Henry in, ahead of this camp. Ahead of this fight, rather, for this camp. And... That seems to have paid some dividends. Um, again, he's he was kicking well. He used that to kind of set things up to stay busy. Uh, his hand speed is still tremendous. But he's a you know, little bit craftier about setting things up in this fight. And Austin Sow had a better second round. He was able to get kind of inside the kicking range a bit more consistently. I still had Garbrandt winning the second, but again, a better round for Austin Sow. And then just at the end... Bought on one faint too many and got just crushed. Um, I know what I would like to see Garbrandt do next. Um, this kind of relates to the, the next fight we're going to talk about, that being Sterling and Sandhagen, um, which Sterling won. I saw this on Twitter from Grabaka Hitman, and I like the idea. I know the UFC is kind of trying to go with Jan and Aldo for the bantamweight title. I would scrap that. I would do Sterling and Jan right now. I would just I'd make that fight. That would be your bantamweight title fight. And if you want to have Aldo do something on that same card, I would do I would do Cody Garbrandt and Jose Aldo. Um, at this point, Aldo doesn't kick a whole lot. And watching Garbrandt have to fight someone with the boxing of Jose Aldo, I mean, Aldo's jab is just so good. And I'm curious to see if Garbrandt would remember that he has a very good jab. So I, I think that's what I would... I mean, if I had my brothers, that's what I'd do. 
It would be Jan and Sterling for the bantamweight belt. You do Cody and Aldo on the same card, even as potentially. Just let them. And if either of them scores another really spectacular finish, you could potentially hot shot them up to the top, to the next number one contender spot. I know that leaves Marlon Moraes really out in the cold, and that really sucks because he's awesome. But uh, I don't know what you do with Moraes is in a weird spot. I don't know what you do with him. I mean, if you look at bantamweight right now, it's a great division, man. It is such a good division. But he's currently ranked number one. He's already knocked out Aljamain Sterling. Um, Sandhagen's going to probably drop. He was at four. He and Austin Sal will probably both drop. Aldo will probably rise. Uh, Garbrandt's going to go up. Garbrandt was nine coming into this. So, I don't, again, I think it sucks for Marais because I don't know what you do with him. Um, I know he had some fun. They were trying to do him versus Jan uh, before Henry Cejudo retired and then COVID and whatnot. So, that sucks. That would have been a great fight. So, I don't know. Again, it really sucks for Marlon, who, uh, again, just kind of out in the cold. Really sucks. But that's kind of what I would like to do. So I would like to see Garbrandt fight Aldo. Um, if that's not going to happen, um, I don't know if I want to see him in Sandhagen. Because, again, Sandhagen loses to Sterling. I think I'd rather see Sandhagen kind of rebuild a little bit than just go straight from, you know, Sterling to Garbrandt. I'd almost rather see Garbrandt against um, maybe a Jimmy Rivera. Again, I really like the Aldo matchup, just in terms of how great a fight I think it is. Um, but he's probably only going to be fighting up instead of down. And, I mean, complicating things, you've got TJ Dillashaw coming back. So, I mean, not yet. That'll be at 21, but that is kind of looming. You know, we're halfway through 2020 at this point. Congratulations to all of you out there for still being alive. <laughs> it's been a rough year, man. So, anyway, that's a again, that's a rough one. Maybe you could do Maybe you could do Garbrandt Marais. Again, that's a pretty big ask for Garbrandt who just broke a three-fight losing streak, but it's again, I think it's possible. I think that's a that's a real possibility. So, anyway, that's that's kind of where that is. Um, much much needed win for Garbrandt. I'm not one of those guys who's going to say he's back. There's, he still didn't show quite the marriage of his skills that I really would want to see. I'd like to see him blending his kicking and his punching together a little bit better in real time. But, I mean, the man's power is exceptional. His hand speed is exceptional. Good wrestler. He doesn't use it very often, but a good wrestler. He's, I mean, even if you look at the fights he lost, you know, to Dillashaw back-to-back, and he very nearly knocked out TJ in that first fight. Uh, This was a much-needed step in the right direction, and if that, one of the other things about Mark Henry you're not really going to key into everything he wants to do with you as a fighter in one camp. 
uh, plenty of other people have said this. I'm not, and this is not to say bad things about anybody. But if you're really trying to learn or augment your style with a completely different coach, that takes time to really seep in, for you to really absorb what they're teaching, for them to really hammer out the nuances of how you as a fighter mesh with their style. So it, it, it just takes a little bit of time to really kind of get that to flesh itself out. So I will say this. I hope he sticks with it. That seems to, again, that seems to be a good partnership thus far. But needed win for Cody Garbrandt. Sucks for Austin Sal, but at the same time, Austin Sal 37. You're now on a three-fight losing streak. It really sucks for Austin Sal that he never fought for the belt. He's one of the best guys to never fight for a belt in the UFC. I mean, if you look at some of the runs he went on at various points in time, uh, they're just really, really good. He holds some big wins, man. Dillashaw, Marais. Sorry, yeah, he did beat Marais. You know, Rob Font. Rob Font's looking really good right about now. You know, that win, I think uh, Austin Sow's win over Rob Font is really going to look better You know, the longer his career goes. Uh, he beat Munoz, who knocked out Garbrandt. He beat Sterling. I mean, Austin Sow has some big wins on his resume. And it is a real shame that he never got to fight for a title. That is a real shame. But at 37, at bantamweight, I think his time in that title orbit is probably done. Uh, next up, again, this was a big night for Bantamweight. Um, Aljamain Sterling, not only did he beat Corey Sandhagen, finished him, rear naked choke, 128 of the first round. Didn't even take this man 90 seconds to take out one of the hottest surging prospects in that division. Sterling came out with a point to prove, man. Um, good front kicks, uh, clinched up quickly, got around to the back, jumped for the body triangle, dragged things down, got some motion going to expose the neck, locked up the choke. Uh, Sandhagen tapped as he went to sleep. I mean, Sandhagen, unbelievably tough guy. You know, he's not going to quit until he has literally no other option, and that Sterling gave him no other option. I... I Ster, after this fight, I mean, I don't think he got hit. Sterling, I don't think he got hit. If he did get hit at all, he didn't get hit clean. I, I really, if he doesn't wind up fighting, you know, Jan for the vacant belt, um, I would keep him on deck for that fight. In all honesty, in case something happens to either Jan or Aldo, but he's he's your number one contender. Like, if you look at what Sterling's done recently. I mean, the man has only lost three times in his entire career. All of them were in the UFC. Two of those were split decisions. I kind of thought he won the Brian Caraway fight. I thought he lost the Austin Sal fight, and then Marais knocked him out cold. So there's no real arguing that one. But when you've only lost three fights, two of those were split decisions that could have gone your, could have believably gone your way, and your one loss was to a guy on maybe the best run of his career who went on to fight for the belt. He's on a, what, five-fight winning streak now? Uh, two of those are finishes, and he's got wins over Brett Johns, who was, I believe, undefeated at the time. Submitted Cody Stamen, who had a good fight on the same card. 
Beats Jimmy Rivera cleanly. Rivera was looking pretty, was, you know, Rivera's a tough out. Beats Pedro Munoz cleanly and then submits Corey Sandhagen in less than 90 seconds. That's your number one contender. Straight up. He should be fighting for the belt next. Um, just a brilliant fight from Aljamain Sterling. Um, as for Sandhagen, he, he's still young. He's only 28. Um, this is a setback. But at the same time, Sterling represented a very real step up in competition for him. I mean, he started off, you know, the Austin Arnett win. I don't think Austin Arnett should be in the UFC. I don't think he is anymore. Uh, the Yuri Alcantara win was impressive, but Alcantara on the downhill. Mario Bartista, good win. John Lineker, you know, very good win. Lineker's a tough out. Austin Sawigan, a little bit on the downhill. And then this was the first time I think he fought another, not just top bantamweight, but like the very, you know, the very top. Like we're talking, you know, very, very best. Sterling could very easily become champion. I mean, there's uh, there's people who were picking him to beat Henry Cejudo if that fight got made. And in all honesty, I think I said I even said it at the time. Like, I would have, I think I would have picked Cejudo, but stylistically, yeah, Sterling would have given Cejudo problems. Again, not to say Cejudo couldn't have overcome them, but a tall, physically strong, rangy fighter with good kicks and a, an exceptional ground game. That's a rough matchup for Henry. Again, that fight doesn't seem like it's ever going to materialize, but that's one that I, I heard a few people say, like, eh, I, th- I think Sterling's the guy to beat Cejudo, and I... and I, It wasn't just... It's not this fight that kind of turned me around on that, but I think Sterling's last two fights and just kind of really thinking about it, you know, like, you know, yeah, I can see that. So, again, setback for Sandhagen, but plenty of time to rebound. Uh, who do I think he should fight next? Again, you can do. I think you could maybe do him and Marice if you need to. If you really need to get Marice in there, uh, I think that would be a great fight. I mean, Sandhagen's a really action-oriented fighter. Uh, Jimmy Rivera is still kind of kicking around. Uh, you could remake Sandhagen and Dominic Cruz. I know that was kind of discussed and uh, thought about for a while before Cruz kind of talked and lucked his way into that title shot, given the state of the world. So maybe a remake Sandhagen and Cruz. Uh, again, I wouldn't complain about that at all. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, best performance of Aljamain Sterling's career. Uh, just phenomenal. Little bit of the old, I think it's the Roy, Join, uh, Roy Jones, excuse me, thing. Um, I think it was Roy Jones. It was Roy Jones or Bernard Hopkins, who said, if you really respect a guy, uh, you don't go out there and fight respectful. You try to take them out as quickly as possible, because then you probably never have to fight them again. And there's a lot of truth to that. You know, if you if you're fighting somebody that, you know, you do respect and potentially ask some difficult questions of your game. If you're able to go out there and do something quick and spectacular, you're probably not going to wind up having to see that person again. So maybe a little bit of that. Now, again, Sandhagen can rebuild, I think, and might be able to get a rematch, but uh, Sterling made it clear that you know they're, they're not going to make this again anytime soon. 
Sandhagen's going to have to force that issue if he wants to. All right. Uh, next, Neil Magny defeated Anthony Rocco Martin via unanimous decision, 230-27 to a 29-28. I don't agree with 30-27. I gave Martin the first round fairly comfortably. Um, this fight, not good. Um, I think Jack Slack on Twitter kind of jokes, and I'll repeat it here because I think it's accurate. If anyone wants to know what MMA is like in 2020, show them this fight. Calf kicks starting to show the jab, but not really kind of uh, fully appreciating and incorporating it, and a lot of clinching. That's not an inaccurate sentiment about the state of MMA right now. Um, I think Neil, I think the ship has sailed on Neil Magny ever doing anything of note. Um, he's just not a terribly interesting fighter at this point. And it sucks he was out for so long with his USADA issue. But, and again, Neil Magny's a, he's not an easy guy to beat. Like, you gotta come out, you gotta attack him quickly. And even then, and even then again, it's not easy. But he doesn't like to get hit, he really doesn't. And he does not like to be the one pressured. But he's, he's, again, a tough out, and he's, but at this point, he's just kind of going to take up space. And the UFC business model kind of rewards... I wouldn't say rewards. There is definitive value to your UFC career in terms of longevity to being a guy who wins more than he loses, even if you never actually accomplish... even if you never actually become, you know, ranked. I mean, Alex Caceres is on the same card, and the man's been in the UFC since 2011. Has not had a single entertaining... Has not had a single entertaining... I'll. Now, some of that is just me. I'll freely admit your mileage may vary. You might be out there going, no, I remember these, like, three fights of his that were all, you know, that were barn burners, and I disagree. I could maybe, if pressed, name you, you know, three fights of his. If you ask me about Magny, I can remember two. I can remember two Neil Magny fights off the top of my head. The Lombard fight and when Ponzinibbio just kind of ran through him. Oh, sorry, three. And when Rafael Dos Anjos bulldozed him. But that's kind of it. And the man's been in the UFC. When's Magny been there? Magny debuted in the UFC in 2013. He's been there over seven years. And if I look at his record, I can remember, because I've covered most of these fights... I can kind of remember some of these fights. You know, the the uh, Kakuno fight, maybe a little. Uh, the Silva fight, again, a little. The Gastelum fight. I remember the Gastelum fight. That was five rounds. The Lombard fight, I remember. Oh, the Larkin fight. God, he got torched by Hector L- by Lorenz Larkin. I don't remember anything about the Hendricks fight. I remember the Dos Anjos fight. I don't remember the Condor or the White fight. Like, there's just so many of these fights that... Again, the UFC does. There is a va- there is value to you as a fighter if you're just kind of there taking up space because the UFC has a lot of space to fill. But I think that's just kind of where Magny is at this point. I think he's just a space filler. He's 32, 33. Uh, 32 will be 33 in August. Uh, I mean, he had his run. It got he it got derailed. Got another run, it got derailed. Like, it's... I think we've seen his ceiling. 
at this point, and I'm not saying the man is, you know, not going to stick around for a while still, but, I mean, I think he's going to be in this spot where he's, you know, that kind of, he's taking up that spot on the card when people kind of go in and out, you know, like, okay, it's, that's just kind of what he does, you know, somewhat dependent on who his opponent is, but just not terribly interested. As for Martin, um, kind of the same thing. I mean, it's not that he's, again, it's not that these are bad fighters. They're not. They're able to win consistently in the UFC. That is incredibly difficult. But I'd be lying if I said I thought they could achieve at the very highest level. Uh, and kicking off the main card, another bantamweight fight. Sean O'Malley knocked out Eddie Wineland with one punch, 154 of the first. This was a heck of a punch. Uh, I've mentioned this in the past. When Sean O'Malley debuted, I was not a believer. He had a, you know, a very boisterous personality that people gravitated towards, and there were a lot of people saying he's got all kinds of skills, and then I just wasn't impressed uh, with what he'd done in the UFC. You know, he had the the Tarian Ware win that went the distance, but I just kind of went, okay, you're better than this guy. He had the Andre Sukum taught fight, which if Andre Sukum taught were any good, he would have won. O'Malley, you know, damages his foot in the third round, can't stand, and Sukum taught just fights in such a way as to not punish him for that. Then he winds up on the shelf for two years with repeated USADA issues related to marijuana use. Um, and then he comes back and the work he did in those two years off, and I said it when he beat Quinones, like, okay, now I, like, that's when I saw it. That's when I saw how good he was. Like, okay, now I get it. Because I think that's kind of the point when, I, I think he's now at a point where he gets it. And when I say gets it, I mean, like, both physically and mentally. He understands his skills. He understands his skills relative to his opponent, and he understands how to maximize that. And I'm not saying the two years off did him any good in terms of, well, boy, it sure was good that this guy who's a potential future star in this sport and could very well contend for the title if his career trajectory continues, was on the shelf for two years because USADA is a terrible organization. But he, I I will say this, I think he made the most of that downtime to refine and add to his skills because uh, he got hit by Eddie Wineland here a couple of times and his chin held up fine. The finishing blow, he fakes an uppercut, comes with, he fakes an uppercut, fakes a jab, comes with a right cross, boom, Eddie Wineland down, out, stiff as a board, walk off, done. Um, O'Malley needs to be fighting someone in the top 15 next. Uh, I, now, let me be clear, not top five, right? Let's let's be, re- again, be realistic here. Wineland was unranked and on the downside of a long career. It would be, it would be you know, ridiculous to throw him in there with, you know, a Jan, a Sandhagen, a Marais, you know, something like that. Um, looking at the top 15 rankings, I think you want to go 10 and below. 
maybe you could go Jimmy Rivera. That would be a, Jimmy Rivera would be, I think, almost a step too far from what I want to see for if you're trying to develop a fighter. Uh, not to say that O'Malley couldn't win that, but Rivera is a really tough ask. Um, you got Rob Font hanging out at ten. Um, you got John Dodson at thirteen. Song Yudong at fourteen. Um, jeez, Dodson or Yudong actually? Now that I, Dodson or Song? Now that I think about it, Marlon Vera at fifteen. Um, O'Malley might take that spot. In all honesty, not sure how fair that is, but I, the UFC rankings are terrible, so I'm just predicting what I think might happen. Yeah, him and Dodson or Song. I think is kind of what I want to see next. You know, they're ranked 13 and 14 right now, respectively. Uh, yeah, I think that's kind of what I want. I think Font should be fighting more up than down right now. So, and again, I'm. It's gonna take something. Uh, O'Malley is no one to be trifled with. The man has power. He's long for the division. And he's really good about setting up his stuff. So. Yeah, again, I was not a believer after his debut and his first couple of fights in the UFC, but again, I can see it now. I can see, and maybe that's because I'm not very good at, you know, <laughs> talent assessment. I've been bad about it in the past. I'm not going to pretend that I'm, you know, any, I'm the very, that I'm, you know, the best. Because, you know, plenty of people better at it than I am were saying he's got something already, uh, but for whatever it's worth, now, yeah, I see it now. Um, you know, Wineland, just dude's 37, 35, excuse me. And he's been fighting since 2003, so he's been fighting for 17 years. He's had a, he's had a solid career, man. Um, he might stick around the UFC a little longer, but, you know, the end is coming up rapidly for him, I think. Uh, that was your main card. Solid fights. Uh, you know, the Magni and Martin one, whatever. Utterly skippable. The others, uh, you know, Nunes and Spencer was kind of a prolonged beating, but the Bantamweights brought it. I mean, they usually do. All right, as for the prelims, Alex Caceres defeated Chase Hooper via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Uh, again, Caceres, just a... Uh, Fairly bog-standard guy on the roster at this point. I mean, he kind of backed into a main event against Yair Rodriguez because the UFC wanted someone who would potentially accommodate Yair's style in a main event. And they were coming to a small market. You know, I'm, I'm not bitter about a whole lot as it pertains to MMA. I am a little bitter that uh, you know, the UFC event in Boise, which is... I think a smaller town and more out of the way than Salt Lake got a main event that featured Junior Dos Santos and had, uh, I think that fight, that event had Chad Mendes and Volkanovski on it. So Boise gets a card with some very good fighters, very notable fighters. Uh, Salt Lake gets Yair Rodriguez and Alex Caceres and not a whole lot else. I know why the UFC's the UFC's kind of mantra is if you're within a certain distance of Nevada, they just kind of give you the finger and say come to Vegas. 
But I am a little bitter that certain small market venues have gotten some at least relevant fights. Uh, but you know, Caceres exists. Um, Hooper is green. His ground game is good, but he's not great about forcing it, and his striking is just rudimentary. His footwork, he doesn't cut off the cage. It's Hooper probably shouldn't be in the UFC. Just put it that way. Um, Ian Heinish defeated Gerald Mershott via TKO 114 of the first. Fake double leg into an overhand. Um, it works. Then Heinish pounds him out on the ground. Uh, Cody Stamen defeated Brian Kelleher via unanimous decision. 30-27 across the boards. I think I gave Kelleher the third. Um, the real story here is not so much the fight, but Cody Stamen lost his 18-year-old younger brother a week before this fight. Uh, all they said on the broadcast was passed away in his sleep. Uh, I am the oldest of four, so I've got three younger brothers. I, One of whom is like 19. Uh, we'll be 20 later this year. I, I couldn't imagine. I could not imagine... Uh how he did that. You know, to, to lose someone like that suddenly seven days before you get into a cage and fist fight another human being, to to kind of compartmentalize like that, to then go out and perform so... and well, like, he fought a great fight. It's the kind of typical Cody Stamen fight, but he fought again very, very well, I, I can't, again, I can barely comprehend how that works. How you, what do you have to, the kind of internal fortitude to pull that off. Uh, so, uh, that fight was up at featherweight. Both men are normally bantamweights. Uh, Stamen, after the fact, was asked about, you know, are you going to stay at featherweight? And he just kind of said, I like featherweight physically, but uh, how I feel here, but I'm really not the right size for it in terms of relative to the competition, so I just make a tough cut to 135. Uh, you know, uh, let's see. Maki Patolo defeated Charles Bird via TKO in the second round. Um, Patolo just kind of... Uh, uh, just a, you know, a Hawaiian scrapper. You know, A little bit like... Uh, I know there were some people saying, does, does he look like a middleweight Max Holloway? Uh, no. He is not nearly that refined. Reminded me a little more of, uh, you know, a, uh, more of Yancey Medeiros. And I don't mean that unkindly. So, I think that's more the comparison I would draw. If we're just going to kind of compare Hawaiian fighters. Maybe a little Brad Tavares as well. I mean, Patolo's solid. Uh, just not great. Bird had a good first round, but gassed himself out. Uh, then on the early prelims, Alex Perez defeated Juicier Formiga via leg kicks, 406 of the first. Um, calf kicks, man, they're nasty. And they're part of the MMA lexicon for a reason. Uh, I heard I heard Luke Thomas mention this on his post-fight special, so I'll echo it here. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about calf kicks, uh, kind of why they've become so prevalent in MMA, uh, there's a... Uh, a a YouTube channel done by a former kickbox. I think he might still be active. 
His nickname was Bazooka Joe. It's Joseph uh, Valtellini. V-A-L-T-E-L-L-I-N-I. Might only be one L there. Sorry, I can't see very well. Uh, but he has a quick little primer on calf kicks and kind of why, you know, what are the benefits of them, why they're so prevalent now in MMA. Uh, that, that's, you know, kind of useful if you're just, if you're just kind of like, okay, why is this thing so popular now? That uh, gives you a little bit more insight into it. Um, Perez was landing those, and Formiga didn't address them immediately. And you kind of have to address those calf kicks quickly because it doesn't take many. I mean, Justin Gagey said he's done throwing leg kicks to the thigh. He much he goes to the calf now because it only takes like four to really have a meaningful impact on the fight. So, a big win for Perez. Formiga is a tough, tough out. So, good for Perez. Uh, light heavyweight Devin Clark defeated Alonzo Menafield. Uh, 30-27 and then 29-28 twice. This fight sucked. And kicking everything off, Herbert Burns defeated Evan Dunham via rear naked choke 120 of the first. Uh, Herbert Burns, not as polished as Gilbert, his brother, but he's great on the ground, man. He got things down, got the back mount body triangle, got some motion going to kind of open the choke, and this is an important thing, I think, that fighters need to start realizing. If all you do when you get the back is control and everything kind of becomes static, it's really hard to finish anyone who knows what they're doing. Not impossible, just hard. Um, and it doesn't address, I forget what John Danaher calls it. Um, I, I wish I could remember what he calls it because it's such a great name for it. Uh, it's something like... The um, the parody conundrum? I don't know. It's something like that. Forgive me. I, someone out there is screaming at me what it is. But the, the point Danaher is trying to make about this is if you've got someone's back, um, you, you ha- both have the same number of weapons, right? You have your two arms. They have their two arms. You, you And if that's all you have is my two arms, your two arms... That's difficult to finish because, again, you have the same number of weapons. You have to address... You have, you have to create some disparity there, right? You have to limit their weapons either by trapping one of their arms with your legs. Uh, BJ Penn used to be really good at that. Gordon Ryan, if you're in jiu-jitsu circles, if you follow that, is really good at that now. In fact, he looks for it all the time. Because once you have two hands and they only have one, they're on... Uh, they're on borrowed time. They That is not a sustainable position of defense. Another way to kind of address this and try to get some offensive, some disparity between your offensive op- options and their defensive options comes through motion. You start things rolling. You start att- uh, So instead of being static, I've got your back, and the only thing working is my arms, you get your hips moving. You kind of roll them over a little bit. You make them address things other than just your hands trying to, or your arms trying to choke them. And that's what Burns did here. He threatened to choke when Dunham defended. He rolled through onto Dunham's knees, let him kind of get his base, slipped the other arm through. He got it like in the mouth. Um, you could see 
Dunham's uh, mouth guard. So he was kind of like, again, his forearm was under the top teeth and then opening the jaw below that. So he, that, that's nasty, man. If you get that, that's nasty. But he got got that into choking position, rolled back over onto his back and forced the tap. I mean, Dunham on the ground is no slouch. So to pull that off against him, uh, you know, good, you know, good sign. Um, yeah, that was the whole event. Good event, top to bottom. Uh, Against a few lulls, but I think if you told me to pick the stinkers beforehand, I would have said Clark and Menafield and probably Magny and Martin, which is some stuff, man. You just look at it on paper and go, okay, this is uninteresting and probably will be uninteresting in practice. And, you know, just, I mean, again, Magny and Martin just had this kind of fight written all over it given how they both fight. Not to knock either guy, you know, they work very hard. They both win consistently at the UFC level. That is an incredible achievement. It doesn't mean that the way those two match up is going to make for a terribly engaging fight. And, you know, Clark and Manifield, low-level light heavyweights. You know, what do you want me to say? Uh... That division is terrible. All right. That was UFC 250. So, again, thank you to anyone who stopped by live, who read my report after the fact. I always appreciate you guys chiming in, saying hi, uh, sharing my work around. It, it does mean a lot. I put a fair bit of effort into these things. So, uh, knowing that, you know, it is not me screaming into the void, basically, is a nice thing. Uh, this coming Saturday, the UFC has another event, and boy is this, uh, this is not a good event. UFC on ESPN Plus 30 for June 13th. Um, you know what? I'm just going to read this card from top to bottom. There's a few fights that, uh, I'm not sure where they fall, but I'm just going to read them out at the bottom. And you tell me everybody out there, if you think this fight card is... Now, in case anyone gets really, really offended by this, let me start with the following. I know the fighters work hard. I know there are some fighters here that are just really, really trying, you know, there's some guys making their debuts, there's some guys, you know, less than three fights, or this is their third. I'm not trying to say... These people are all terrible, okay? I'm really, really not. But I can call this card like I see it in terms of what I think it will be to watch. And some of these fights, if you take them out and you put them on better cards, are... I'm not complaining about any of their existences, like in a vacuum. This card, just, let's just, again, top to bottom, I'm going to read the fights, and you guys can decide for yourself. Main event, women's flyweight, Jessica I and Cynthia Calvillo. I think this is Calvillo's flyweight debut. Yeah, she missed, you know, three times at strawweight. Uh, UFC's forcing her up here. So, I and Calvillo, main event. Not a good sign right off the bat. Um, Carl Robertson versus Marvin Vittori. 
These two were supposed to fight at the Smith and Teixeira card a couple of weeks ago. And that got pulled after Robertson had some kind of... He um, had some medical concerns related to his weight cut, I think. And that got pulled, got rescheduled here. I think this is probably the best fight on the card, objectively. Um, at Bantamweight, Marab really and Ray Borg might be a fun scramble fest. I think more likely Borg just kind of gets held down. Andre Feely and Charles Jourdain. Uh, I can't imagine caring about this fight unless you're a coach, a friend of either of the fighters. I mean, Feely is only 29, but he's got almost 30 fights. He's had some he's had some good wins, but I just kind of feel like at this point, again, if he were going to do something, he might have done it by now. You know, there's a very real kind of shelf life for fighters in any sport, and it's not just age-related. It's age mixed with number of fights, mixed with years, mixed with damage. Like, it's a really weird kind of equation to try and figure out. And I bring this up for Feely because almost 30, uh, 29, he will be 30 in, he'll be 30 this month. With, this will be his 28th professional fight. He's been in the UFC since 2013. Uh, he's been finished a couple of times. He's got a lot of decisions. And it's... I'm not saying he can't finally, you know, put it all together. But if he's going to do that, uh, you really can't wait any longer. Um, at Bantamweight, Jordan Espinosa and Mark De La Rosa. I, I mean, De La Rosa's on a three-fight losing streak. His UFC record is two and four. And Espinosa, he's fought in the UFC a couple of times. Um, let me look him up specifically real fast. Again, he's been in the UFC. Yeah, his UFC record is one and two. He's on a two-fight losing streak. Um, Charles Rosa and Kevin Aguilar uh, might be another possible... I mean, Aguilar's on a two-fight losing streak as well. He had a really long winning streak when he got to the UFC, but uh, he's struggled his last couple of fights. Um, Julia Avila and Gina Mazzani... I, Ryan Benoit versus Tyson Nam. Uh, Benoit coming off of a loss. He's been trading wins and losses for a while now, since before he was in the UFC, even. Uh, whereas Nam is on a losing streak. Yeah, he's lost. He's been in the UFC for two fights. He's lost both of them. Um, Jordan Griffin and Derek Minner. Uh, hang on, sorry. Griffin has a couple of fights in the UFC. I think he won his last one. Yeah, he beat TJ Brown. Had a rough first round in that fight, and kind of a rough second before he pulled it out in the third. Minner debut? 
Nope, lost his debut to Grant Dawson. Don't even remember that fight. And then, no, I covered it. Um, then we have Anthony Ivy and Christian Aguilera. Is that still on? Again, some of these have been shifted around a lot. Um, some of the announced bouts, I'm not sure if they're still active. Uh, let's see. There was supposed to be a fight between Ariane Lipsky and Luana Carolina. Uh, that seems to have been rescheduled. Um, yeah, that's the card. I'm, again, I fully respect the work all of these fighters have put in to get to the point that they are. Being a fighter is unbelievably difficult. And I am not trying to say that none of these people should be fighting, that none of them should have the right to make a living. I'm not even saying any of them in particular shouldn't be in the UFC. I think there might be an argument on a couple of them that maybe they shouldn't be here, but I'm not making that argument, right? I'm making the argument and really, the crux of my case is this. Is are you listening? If you want to tell me to shut up and that you're excited about these fights, okay. I'm just asking. Are you excited about any of these? Uh, I mean, feel free to think about it. Because, I'm going to be honest, I'm not. This is one of the worst cards the UFC has put together. If we're talking about relevance and the ability to kind of generate fan interest, uh, there's... I bet if you asked most fans, they probably wouldn't couldn't tell you that most of these people were in the UFC. It's... It's just not a good card. And I don't mean that to knock any of the fighters. Be and look, I'll freely admit, right? It might be a good night of fights in practice. That happens. And in all honesty, if you were to tell me, you know, pick, you know, a handful of fights from here that if you that you think could be good when they get in the cage, I can pick a few. Uh, Dwalish really and Borg might be. Uh, scramble-heavy, high-paced, interesting. Might. Uh, Robertson and Vittori don't like each other. That one might end violently. Um, you know, Charles Rosa and Kevin Aguilar might have a good brawl. So it's not like I look at this and go, I know everything's going to be bad. Or, I have a, or there's a high probability that all of these fights are going to suck. Because I don't think that's true. But this this whole card exists because the UFC has a minimum number of events. The UFC has enough guaranteed money when they put on an event to put on anything. And they're proving that here. Right? None of this is drawing interest, this card. Just none of it. And... That's not to say all... Again, that's not saying all the fighters are bad. 
But what in this card draws interest? Calvillo, maybe? There was a time when maybe that was true. But the loss to Esparza, the way her last couple of fights have gone, even in victories, the weight misses. She fought to a draw with Marina Rodriguez her last time out and missed weight badly. Like the, That hype train has stalled. Right, like she debuted and had, th- you know, three really good crackerjack fights. Was on pace to have a really great 2017, and then fights unbelievably boneheaded against Carlo Esparza. And that that kind of did it. Like she rebounded, but she was fighting lower, you know, down in the card, and she wasn't looking as good as she did. Uh, so I'm not saying she can't regain some of it, but that that hype train is stalled, if not derailed. Uh, and Jessica I really has Jessica High I ever had an engaging fight? Because I can't think of one. I mean, I off the top of my head, first of all, I have covered all of her UFC fights. Okay, I thought she lost the fight with Sarah Kaufman. That wound up turning into a no contest. I do kind of remember her busting open the cauliflower ear of Leslie Smith. Uh, that was... I, I remember that more for the Smith injury than for anything I did. She goes on that long losing streak. She moves up to flyweight. She wins three in a row, but I couldn't tell you anything about any of those fights. She gets blasted by Shevchenko. Uh, she then misses weight in her return bout. In fairness about the Araujo win, that was actually one of the first times her game ever, her, her fight game ever looked like it kind of came together. But... I, again, the only the only of her fights I can actually remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, I mean the lasting image is Valentina just head kicking her into a coffin. Like, this is not an event that's going to draw any kind of interest. You know, the UFC doesn't care because ESPN pays them when they put on anything, as long as it's you know the UFC brand and live. I think. So they're, they've thrown together this card that no one cares about. And Dana's going to give a great impassioned speech before the event about how no one cares about this. You guys go out there and prove them wrong. And, may, again, I will not be you know, gobsmacked if there's some great fights on this card. I, do I think it's likely? Not especially. There's a few I can pick out that are like, yeah, that might be good. But I'm if I weren't covering this event, I'd probably skip it. There's just nothing there that grabs my interest like that, you know? So yeah, it's it's not a good card on paper. I'm just I'm gonna call a spade a spade. Now Next week, I might be saying, boy, there were some great fights. I hope I am. You know, I always say this. I want the fights to be good. 
I don't like watching bad fights. I don't like watching boring fights. I have to sit here and cover this. I want it to be good. I hope it is. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. But I am not going to lie to you and say uh, anything other than what I feel is the truth. Now, what I feel is the truth if it's subjective or what the truth is when it's more empirical, right? That's the truth. This is not a good card. It's not terribly interesting. And I don't think it'll draw well. I don't think it'll drive a lot of interest. I hope the fights are good. I really do. But other than that, that's where I am with this. Uh, again, as for picks, such as they are... Jeez, that main event. If Calvillo fights at her best, she wins that fight, I think. How often does she fight at her best, though? I'm gonna pick Calvillo, but eh. Um, Vittori over Robertson. Probably Dwalish really over Borg. Feely over Jordan. I will go Espinosa over De La Rosa. Aguilar over Rosa. Um... Vila and Mazzani. Yeah, who cares? Flip a coin. <laughs> um, Benoit and Nam. Gonna lean Benoit. Uh, Griffin and Minner. Griffin, I guess. Uh, Lipsky and Carolina. Lipsky, because Luana Carolina. Luana Carolina probably shouldn't be in the UFC. Um, that I'm going to say. Assuming that fight's still on. That's a pretty big assumption on my part at the moment. So, uh, that's that's kind of where I am on that. So, come be in the MMA zone next Saturday of 411 Mania to enjoy my suffering. Uh, yeah, that'll be a thing. Okay, let's move on to some news, because the news is great. Uh, let's start with some interesting stuff that's come out recently. The fighter pay situation has reared its ugly head. I mentioned last week when Marco and I were here, uh, we talked a little bit about John Jones and him, you know, having his pay dispute with the UFC and whatnot. Henry Cejudo retired due to a pay dispute, basically, or, or at least in part. Um, well, this last week, Jorge Masvidal, the BMF champion, chimed in. Uh, he's not happy with his pay. He also kind of brought up the contention that he that UFC fighters are not independent contractors, which I, to be fair, that's a determination that has to be made by the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. But I think there's a very strong argument to be made that fighters in the UFC are not independent contractors, but employees. I might be wrong, but that argument is that argument exists, right? And I, I do think it's, there's a strong case to be made. Now, that changes outside the UFC. It's kind of like um, the same thing comes up with WWE wrestlers on occasion. Because wrestlers in WWE are con- independent contractors, not employees. And if you're a wrestler outside of WWE, it's probably accurate to call you an independent contractor. If you're in the WWE, however, 
Um, I think they've gotten by just on no one wanting to rock the boat and make an issue out of it, in all honesty. And I think the UFC, for a time, it was correct to classify the fighters as independent contractors. I'm not so sure that's still the case. Again, I might be wrong. I'm... I tend to think at this point they're probably more employees. Uh, so, Masvidal's made some noise. He's referenced constantly that the UFC likes to keep their fighter... The amount uh, the amount of revenue that the UFC generates that they pay out to fighters is somewhere between, I think, like 15 and 18% of total revenue. Uh, which is... It is horribly low. Uh, if the you know NBA or the NFL only paid 18% of total revenue to the players, um, yeah, no, the if you're uh, and you know, again, if you're in the NBA, I think they get 40 some odd percent right now. It fluctuates a little bit, but a very nearly 50% of the total revenue brought in by the league goes to the players, and is usually, I think, distributed in that case equally. And then, you know, any players have at a minimum, you know, they have, there are league minimums, there's whatever a player can get from the particular organization that they play for, etc., etc. And the, so, 80% more of the UFC's total revenue per year, the fighters see none of it. Uh, now, and it's, I think it's finally starting to stick in some people's craws, right? You had Cejudo, Jones, now Masvidal. Uh, Jones and Masvidal are two of the bigger draws they have right now. Masvidal's star power has never been better. And Masvidal took to Twitter and laid out some of his grievances. Not all of them, but one of the things he mentioned was the UFC's ability to add time to your contract. Uh, their ability to cut you whenever they want without you having the same abil- availability to get out of your contract. Uh, he, he brought up some valid points, uh, some incredibly valid points that a lot of smart people, smarter than me, have been making for a while about how how short the end of the stick is that the fighters get. Um, Gray Maynard actually took to Twitter a little bit to kind of talk about his experiences, and that is some of the stuff Maynard talked about. Really, I wouldn't say it surprised me in uh, in kind of like uh, if you told me Gray Maynard was terribly underpaid, I would not have been surprised. When he says that for his first title fight with Frankie Edgar. He only made $26,000 on his contract. Again, underpaid, not surprising at all. That underpaid? Woof. Um, I mean... Because uh, his contract was, I think, 26 and 26 is what he said. For a title fight. I mean, let that sink in for just a second. Man fought for the UFC lightweight title. And his contract said $26,000 to show, 26000 to win. I mean, in his own words at that point, he couldn't 
He wasn't making enough money fighting to justify hiring a manager. I mean... And he didn't back into that title fight, you know? Like, he'd been in the UFC for a number of years at that point. Uh, uh, I think one of the things you know, he, uh, he got asked, I think also, you know, tell me the UFC paid you more than your contract for that because you know that was at least a $500,000 fight, which is hilarious, by the way. That's how warped the MMA fan base's perception and sense of fighter compensation is. They look at that absolute barn burner war between Gray Maynard and Frankie Edgar. If you haven't seen their first title fight recently, Go back and rewatch it. In any other sport, any other combat sport, that ty- that is a at that level, right? UFC highest level. Not just that, not just signing for that title fight, but that kind of performance is a multi-million-dollar performance. And I think he said the UFC threw an extra hundred grand at him. You should have tacked another zero onto that at a minimum, right? So Maynard's opened up a little bit about... Now, when Maynard came in at the end of UFC, he came in with a tough five. So I'm I'm willing to make some minor allowances at certain points along the UFC's history because they operated at a loss for a while, a while, which is not uncommon for leagues or promotions that are starting up, right? So certain practices when there's a real either, you know, a real kind of impetus to make the business profitable. Now, um, again, the Ultimate Fighter 5 is when that's really starting to turn around for the UFC. It's when they're really kind of starting to cook along. They're reintroducing lightweight, uh... Again, they're not quite at their apex, but they're trending quickly, positively. So the fact that his first contract in the UFC was not great, uh, I can, again, I there's just a few allowances I'm willing to make under those circumstances. Uh, it just the fact that I would have no, the fact that there are still people coming into the UFC in 2020 making about that. Uh, again, I... I think he actually mentioned, um, you know, that, that title fight. He almost would have lost money, given how... given what he... Uh, people don't realize this. I don't know how... I don't know how many people, you know, whether they just deliberately don't think about it, have never thought about it, you know, whatever you... Training for a fighter is not free or cheap. You want to train in an MMA gym at the professional level like that? You pay. You pay the coaches. You, you know, I, I don't know why... I don't know why we don't discuss this enough or more in the space, right? I think it's because there's a lot of people who just kind of carry over the... Uh, because of how the UFC structures itself, like a league. And in any other league, you know, the coaches are paid by the specific organization. You know, the, you know, pick your, you know, whatever it is, you know, the 
The Patriots pay Bill Belichick. I don't know if he's still there or not, but by way of example, right? The NFL doesn't pay Bill Belichick. The New England Patriots organization does. And I think there's a little bit of just kind of the association with that sort of process that the UFC... They've never pushed it. They've never lied about it. But in the just kind of broad strokes and way people interact with the sport, there might be a little bit of just disconnect between the financial reality of a fighter fighting and their coaches. Again, fighters pay their coaches. Uh, that That's how you... That's how you own an MMA gym. You know, uh, this is another kind of reality of owning a gym, right? If you want to own one, you know where you know where any combat sports gym actually makes its money, how it pays the bills. It's not the professional fighters. It's kids' classes and cardio kickboxing most of the time. That's where your money comes from. It's not from. You know, how much revenue does, like... Okay, let's use a maybe a weird example. Let's take Khabib and or Daniel Cormier and American Kickboxing Academy. Daniel Cormier pays AKA to train there. Pays Javier Mendez to coach him. Pays... I think Bob Cook is still there. He might not be, but if he, if he isn't, my apologies, but the point will still stand. He pays those people to coach him. Right? They technically work for him. How much money does Daniel Cormier bring to that facility on an annual basis? There's whatever he pays for their services. There's whatever percentage they get of his purse, which I don't... And again, that will vary. Uh, Some fighters will pay their corner out of their earnings off the top. Uh, So... You know, before, if you make, say, you know, $30,000 for a fight, uh, a lot of agents, managers, trainers, uh, they don't get paid off of your net. They get paid off of your gross. And so, again, a lot of fighters don't make a lot of money if you really want to break things down. Because, again, you get whatever the UFC pays you, then there's, there's before you even pay taxes, right? There's your manager. There's potential gym and corner fees, assuming that those come off the gross, and most of them do. There's you know, any other, and then you're going to, then say some of the other stuff comes out of your net, right? So then you pay taxes, you've got your net. Maybe you have, you know, a, I, I don't again I don't know any of this to be true, but if Daniel Cormier pays AKA a monthly fee to be his trainer to use their facilities and whatnot, and they get a chunk of whatever his fight purse is. Now I don't know that that's the case. I'm speculating, but and I'm I'm not even speculating. I'm using this as an, as an example, hypothetically. Maybe in the case of Daniel Cormier, they just do a you know when you you pay us when you fight if you fight. If you don't fight uh, within a certain amount of time, then you pay us a monthly dues fee kind of thing. It, there's a, Again, there is some flexibility here, but none of that is free. And a lot of fighters, some fighters seem to be coming around to the idea that they are really getting the short end of the stick. 
And, uh, again, I don't blame them. So, now, how successful will this be? That's a really open question. I think if you're going to push for, you know, collective bargaining or at least getting their status reevaluated by the NLRB, you need a couple of things if you're uh, fighters. One, you need some people at the top, right? You need some of the top-tier, high-profile people pushing the cause, or at least you know, talking about it, being willing to go in on this, which you have, theoretically. Then you need somewhere between 30 and 50% of currently contracted fighters to kind of force the issue from a machinery perspective, right? The UFC gets paid regardless of what they put on. So, I mean, in theory... If all 500-some-odd people on the roster right now just quit, the UFC could sign 500 or so new fighters from the from other organizations or the regional scene or whatnot and just keep going because ESPN has to pay them a flat fee when they put something on. The quality doesn't really factor into that. ESPN is basically going to be paying the same for this, you know, I versus Calvillo event which, again, not a good card, as they did for, uh, you know, the Woodley Burns event, which was on big ESPN. Uh, there might be a difference between ESPN and ESPN Plus, so hang on. So they'll be paying the same as they paid for the uh, Glover Teixeira versus Anthony Smith card. One of those cards is much better on paper, draws much more interest, but ESPN is basically going to be paying the same. So there's there is a real thing that a uh, real sense of how the UFC just doesn't care what they put on as long as they put on something. But if yeah, this is one of the things that you have to consider, if a if about fifty percent of the contracted fighters right now just stopped signing bout agreements, could the UFC even really keep the machine turning over for a long period of time? I I hate to harp on this upcoming card, but that's not a great card. The UFC has already burned through a lot of their fighters. Uh, do and some of this is and I'll, again, a lot of this is restricted due to travel restrictions, courtesy of the pandemic. Because pandemic, so that's a, that's a very real consideration. But they're they've already burned through a lot of that material. A lot of the you know, fighters are resources in this respect. They've used a lot of them. If they just lost 200, 300 fighters who just said, no, I'm not going to sign, sign any bout agreements. It's not that the UFC couldn't sign other fighters to potentially fill those slots. Again, they could. But that's that's where the damage to the machine might start to be real. And that's kind of the, if you're going to force the issue, that's what you would need. You would need a couple of people at the top for visibility and for you know the upper end. And then you'd need a significant chunk, if not a majority, of the rank and file to get behind it. I'm not saying anything's really going to come of this. Um, I will say that, you know, uh, there's... I'm not going to harp on anyone in particular. There is a bit of confusion about what an independent contractor is versus an employee, I think, for a lot of people. 
you don't have to be in a union to be an employee. No one at Walmart is a, is a member of a union. They're all employees. Uh, I've been employed at various places. I've signed an employment contract. Just because you sign a contract doesn't make you an independent contractor. I'm an independent, not even contractor really, I'm an independent blogger, I think is how I'm technically categorized for 411. I'm free to do a lot of other stuff. There, It, it defines partially the obligations that we have to each other, the restrictions we place on each other, much more so than did I as an individual sign a contract. If you've been employed somewhere, you've signed a contract to be employed there. Most of the, if you're if you're dealing with a small enough organization, you might just get cash kind of under the table kind of thing, or you know on a very like case by case basis, day labor kind of stuff. So it's not that it's utterly impossible that you ever were employed without signing a contract, but it's rare. Most of the time, again, like the vast majority, when you're employed part-time or full-time, you have signed a con- you've signed an employment contract. And I, I guarantee you, you have. If you ever had a job, you know, if you've ever been employed, you did all that paperwork the first time you, uh, when you got brought in, uh, your employment contract was one of those things. So. Independent contractor, again, it's just about the obligations that both parties have to each other, the restrictions they place on each other, and the responsibilities, right? And at depending on what you, what the obligations are, what the responsibilities are, you're either an independent contractor or you're a, or you're an employee. And there's a very real question about whether or not the UFC's current business practices mean that their fighters should be categorized as employees. And to be clear, just because they're employees doesn't mean that they're going to form a union or some kind of collective bargaining agreement. They might not. Uh, Again, Walmart, biggest retailer on the... Well, I don't know if Amazon has surpassed them or not, but Walmart's certainly one of the biggest retailers on the planet. And there are... Walmart is notoriously anti-union. Not that there aren't unions for, again, retail workers. There are. Uh, there are... Um, you, know, there, you can choose whether or not, in some respects, you can choose whether or not your business is going to be a union business or a non-union business. Uh, for bigger, for smaller businesses in particular, sometimes being non-union is the only viable way for them to do business. Uh, you see this in, I think, like New York and Philly in some cases, smaller businesses that even if there is a union for whatever the service that their employees are doing, if you employ union people, then there's a then there are in certain restrictions, certain qualifications put on that they can't afford, so they only hire non-union workers. So, it, it, you know, labor relations is a entire field of study unto itself. And if you're fighting in a smaller organization, independent contractor is probably appropriate. 
if you're fighting in the UFC, given how the UFC structures things, it's less clear. And I, I'm happy in some respects to leave it to the experts to determine, but it's just less clear to me. Is kind of the best way to phrase that. So that that seems to be growing a little bit. That, that kind of growing pay dispute between fighters in the UFC. So definitely be keeping an eye on that one. Uh, all right, next up, I don't want to talk about this, but I should. Um, Conor McGregor retired again. This is his third retirement, I believe, in the last like five years less. Um, I don't know. I don't know what to, I don't know if this is just public negotiation again. Um, I will say this about this one. McGregor is in a very different point in his life now than he was the last time. Um, last time, I don't think he had anything else, really. He had, like, maybe the whiskey business that was starting to get going, but he didn't really have a whole lot outside of fighting. Now he does. And I don't just mean his business, I mean he's got a kid. And I think he has two, doesn't he? Or one and another one potentially, I don't know, something like that. I'm not up to speed on the personal life of Conor McGregor. Sue me. I don't care. But he's got a family now that he's potentially dealing... So, again, if he is completely negotiating in public a little bit and fights again before the end of the year, I will not be surprised one bit. Not one. I will also say I won't be shocked if this one sticks. He's in a different place personally now than the last times he's kind of played this card. Um, I'd be more surprised if it sticks than if it doesn't. But, uh, again, eventually one of these times when he says it, he's going to mean it. <laughs> you know, so maybe I'll just start hedging my bets and every time he says I'm retired, I'll just say this is the one and at some point I will be correct. Uh, he's, but you know, he's posting stuff about, I think he got a, either a cake or a big like brownie thing that was, that had like happy retirement daddy on it from uh, his kids too little to actually do it. But you know, his wife or his partner, I don't know if they're married. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'd be, again, I would be a little surprised if it sticks, but I won't be, you know, shocked. Um, I, you know, ask me which, what I think is going to happen. I don't think he's done. I think he's going to fight again. I think he's just really wanting either more money or a higher profile fight. Um, I mean, you know, look what happened after Gagey versus Ferguson, right? Everybody said, everybody started talking about Gagey Khabib. Rightfully so. Great fight. I can't wait for that fight. But Connor, you know, he's wanting to keep his name relevant. And if this is 
a tool to kind of help drum up more publicity and get a better feel for you know where he should be looking next for his fight. I mean, one of the things he said was, you know, I I don't know why they postponed Gagey versus Khabib. You could have done me and Gagey for that interim belt right away. And just kind of kept things going instead of waiting another three months to try and maybe make Gagey versus Khabib. Uh, so he might just be angling for a fight uh, that he de- that he considers worth his time and energy. And to be fair, Connor's time and energy is worth a lot of money. I'm not. I don't begrudge him that at all. He worked hard to make himself a valuable commodity. So if. So, I, I imagine he'll be back. But, one again, one of these retirements is going to stick. <laughs> so, uh, we'll see. Uh, that's where things stand right now. All right. Um, oh, we got our reveal about Fight Island. Um, <laughs> remember how the UFC was, like, spilling that crap about we're building an infrastructure? And it turns out that Fight Island is just, I think it's just Yaz Island in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that might not be Yaz Island, but, like, uh, yeah, Fight Island, it's just the facility where we had <laughs> uh, Khabib versus Poirier. Like, yeah, you invested a lot of money into that, guys. What a load of crap. Uh, oh, can I also say, just kind of, sorry, I missed this on the fighter pay, but I, I'll bring it up here as well, sure. Because the UFC's like, I don't know, we're buying a private island and we're going to build out the infrastructure necessary to host fights. And Oh, God. Turns out, no, we're just going to be at the same facility that a bunch of shakes paid us a lot of money to host an event in anyway. And then, you know, Dana has the audacity to go, I don't know why fighters are asking for more money. That is the most disingenuous, bald-faced bull that I think has ever come out of Dana White's mouth. And believe me, that's saying something. I don't know why the fighters want more money. Again, that's just such a disingenuous thing to say. How easy is it to say everybody wants more money? Everybody does! It's a true statement. And it, and it, I mean, it also falls in the in line with Dana's history of saying innocuous BS that doesn't actually mean anything until he says something that he means because he thinks it's the appropriate time to say it. Instead of just go, I don't know, I don't know what the natives are restless about. Uh, just what a load of crap. One of the one of the most asinine things Dana's ever said. I mean, ever. So, yeah, the whole Fight Island thing, no, it's just hosting fights in the UAE. Because apparently the UAE has uh, eased their restrictions recently on travel related to the pandemic. So, uh, we'll have to see how that plays out. But, yeah, that's... Yeah. Ugh. What a giant nothing that turned out to be, huh? Giant nothing. We all fell for it. Um, okay, last sort of piece of news here. Uh, 
Alexander Gustafson, former two-time light heavyweight title challenger, is coming out of retirement, apparently, and will be moving up to heavyweight to fight Fabricio Verdum. Uh, not terribly surprised Gustafson came back. Uh, he retired after the Smith fight, which was, I just need to remind myself of when that was, about a year ago. Um, that, that loss, of course, came on the heels of his bad loss to John. I mean, uh, that, that rematch between John and Gustafson is not competitive. John takes him to the woodshed. And then Smith beat him, finished him in the fourth. Uh, most of that fight was Anthony Smith's, I think. Not not a blowout blowout, but uh, leaned mostly Smith's direction all the way until the finish. I might be misremembering. Um, yeah, he's he's coming back. And he will be fighting... Fabricio Verdum on July 25th. Um, Gus at heavyweight is an interesting prospect, I suppose. Uh, sorry, not he is an interesting prospect. It's an interesting prospect for him to fight in that weight class. Because he's a big guy. You know, he's 6'4". Uh, Verdum's not an easy fight. Verdum also isn't what he used to be, so... A manageable task, I think, for Gustafson, and probably an informative one about what he's about his future at that division if he's going to have one. Um, I don't know, any other than that, I have to wait and see. But if he just needed, you know, the year or so off to kind of refresh his batteries, uh, I don't blame him. That dude fought on a fairly consistent clip. Well, he had a, he actually had a, he had another uh, injury-related layoff. Um, yeah, he had several, actually, jeez. Uh, he... Let's see. Yeah, because he had a back injury that, uh, forced him out of a fight with Little Nog. He's missed about a year more than once. So... Uh... Yeah, it's, and he's, he, he's 33, guy, he's younger than I am, I am such a waste of space, he's got 24 fights though, and he's been in the UFC for a while, he debuted in the UFC in 2009, so, I mean, he debuted professionally in seven, so we're, you know, Talking about a length, fairly lengthy career, so I don't know. Uh, I have to wait and see on that as far as that goes. But uh, I wouldn't put it past him to make a resurgence. Heavyweight is a weak division, so uh, we'll see if he makes it to the fight or not. But yeah, the Mauler announces his return, so we'll keep our eyes open, I suppose. All right, let me check Twitter one more time, see if anything crazy has happened. All right, nothing crazy looks like it's broken, so let's go ahead and just get plugs out of the way here, and we'll get out of this episode. 
Alright, uh, I don't actually have anything coming up this week off the top of my head. So, yeah, just my report for UFC 250 and the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. My review of the MLW Satoshi Kojima anthology they released on Saturday is up in the Wrestling Zone. And this coming Friday, that, uh, yeah, UFC on ESPN Plus 30 card that no one will watch. Uh, we'll be breaking down, we'll be covering all of that action, and then, uh, back here next week, and we will be reviewing that card, and I think previewing the next one. 20th. Yeah, we'll be previewing the, um, card headlined by Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov. Good fight, actually. I mean, it's heavyweight, so it might be awful, but it's a relevant fight, if nothing else. You know, Blades looking real good, actually, in his last three wins. Uh, Volkov uh, had the loss to Derek Lewis in a fight he was dominating that really derailed his momentum, but you know, he's in a pretty good spot, so very relevant heavyweight fight, if nothing else. Uh, Josh Emmett and Shane Burgos on that card, that's a good fight. Uh, Frank Camacho and Matt Frivola could be fun. So, we'll, we'll have a full breakdown of that next week, so hope to see you all back here. Until then, thank you again for your patronage, thank you for your subscriptions, your upvotes, your ratings, your reviews, your shares, all of it. Thank you very much. Deeply appreciate you people. Uh, stay safe out there, as always. It's crazy. And continue to be well, be safe, and behave.